Well, we're in Luke chapter 9, and we're in a scene that ties directly into the previous three verses that we looked at last week. This, this week's scene, John standing in uh, for the disciples asks a different but related question to last week's question, who is the greatest? Only John's question is a result of what the 12 uh, perceived to be their, their insider status in comparison to an outsider who they think has no business doing what he was doing. So again, we're in Luke chapter 9. Uh, we're actually going to begin in verse 46 and pick up those three verses from last week and then keep going a little bit. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's uh, go again in prayer to him. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word in your Son, and we pray that through your Spirit we might grow in him and be shaped by him. We pray this all in his name, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Well, last week in considering the disciples' argument over who is the greatest, and in turn Jesus' response, that his disciples were to see themselves as having the same status as, as children, that is, no status at all, at least as the world considers status, we discuss the problem of legalism and how it shows up in Christian communities. And there's essentially two kinds, or you might say two variants, of legalism. And the first kind is the kind that's on view with, say, religions like Mormonism or Islam, religions that are notably Christian heresies. The kind of legalism, this kind of legalism believes that we can, at least in some sense, uh, work our way up a ladder of ever-growing good works and righteousness till we find ourselves at the top of the ladder and supposedly close to God. And what makes them heresies is not merely, merely that they have a false view of how God relates to people in that we work our way up to him. That is false. In turn, they wind up worshiping a different God altogether. It's why you can find elements of Christianity within Islam and Mormonism. They even use much of the same language and sometimes the same scriptures. But upon closer inspection, the God they worship is very different, even as they will, at least in the case of Mormonism, use much of the same language. Even so, to understand the I must work my way up the ladder to God mentality, a relevant example, and we talked about this last week, and it seems even more relevant today, is how the leadership of Hamas is so committed to Allah and holy war that they willingly sacrifice their own people even as they rejoice in the slaughter of Jewish children. And what motivates such atrocities is not money or power or love for the Palestinians, but their misplaced love for Allah and the belief that such works will cause Allah to love and accept them. That's why suicide bombers do what they do. Obviously, this is not the kind of legalism that most uh, people in our circles are attracted to, but still, it, it does exist in obviously less extreme forms. Now, it's really the second kind of legalism that is really attractive to us. 
even as it is largely invisible to us. And when I say it's invisible, what I mean is that we don't think about it or really even notice it. It's just the air we breathe. We just take this as normal, everyday life. The second kind of legalism doesn't look to earn our way uh, to heaven. It looks to build social status among whatever peers we find most important. And sometimes that is within the church or within a, I guess, broader religion. Paul serves as a good example of that within Judaism before coming to Christ. And we could probably think of people who point to things like church attendance or knowledge of theology or how often they are asked to pray in public or how much they volunteer as a means of, of proving their worth among other Christians. And they, they pursue these things or at least make a show of, of doing them, not because church attendance or praying are good in themselves, which, by the way, they are, but because they want other people to think that guy is a good guy. That guy is a good man. It's the sort of thing people go looking for in order to make a man's funeral more palatable, despite the fact that he's dead. Old Jimmy, you know, he, you could always see him at church. He, he might be the first one there. He was always quick with a smile. He, he'd give you a hand without having to ask him twice about it. And I bet, you know, right now, I bet he's out, he's out uh, tracking down a, a covey of quail with his favorite bird dog right now. Don't you know he's probably doing that? You know, to put the kindest interpretation on those kinds of statements, people say things like this at funerals in order to express that they loved him, that they loved him, and they really don't know what to say. But deep down, I think they're trying to prove to those listening that the man in the coffin had real value and worth, and they want you to see that. It's why when I do a strictly Presbyterian funeral, outsiders are sometimes offended at how much I talk about Jesus and how little I talk about the person who is now with Jesus. The second kind of legalism is not concerned with how God sees us. It's concerned with how other Christians or whoever we think matters see us. And in reality, how God sees us hardly matters because God and the things of God are the means we use to score points within the social group. And as I mentioned last week, in response to this, Christians, among others, will often take the flip side of this kind of legalism and instead will pursue licentiousness. So if that church is a teetotaler church, we are both going to be open about how much we drink. We're going to brag about it. They are the legalists. We're free. We are free. If those people refuse to watch rated R movies or laugh at racy jokes, well, not only will we pride ourselves on that stuff, we will prove to others that we're not beyond the use of sexual innuendos and mild racism in order to score a few points among our anti-legalist peers. And what the, both the, the fundies, and I guess you could call them the freebies, assume is that what really matters is what our in-group or our peers think about us and how we rank among them, as opposed to what God thinks of us. And of course, this is exactly what the disciples were arguing about. Among the twelve, among those set apart by Christ himself, who is the greatest? And if the twelve were actually concerned with how God thought about them, they would know just how bankrupt and misplaced such questions are, and in turn, they'd repent of them. But at this point in the gospel, 
They haven't learned this yet. In response, Jesus pulls a child to him and says, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And as we discussed last week, children in the ancient world, just like today, while beloved and treasured, they had no status. So while we may see children as beautiful and precious and possessing great potential, no mature adult would ever put a child in charge of the family, let alone trot them out as an example to the world or put them on a pedestal. So for good reason, the Romans didn't consider a man ready to lead or to serve in government until he was 40. So what Jesus is teaching, and Paul gives a fuller treatment of this through his teaching on union with Christ, is that in Christ, we have all the status we could ever hope to have. It doesn't get any better. So to be a son or a daughter of the true God is as good as it gets. And as I already put it in the confession of sin, it's not your position that matters anymore. Because you have the best position you can possibly have. It's your disposition. And that sort of thinking is fine as far as it goes, especially if you, you know, you're, you're, you're wealthy and famous. If you're you know, like, okay, I guess my disposition. You know. But in Christ... Our position to God cannot get any closer to Him. And this reality should impact our disposition to every circumstance we face. But apart from Christ, by default, our disposition to every situation we are in will be based on how we assess our position. It's why this second kind of legalism is so pernicious, why it infects just about every relationship and every place we go. Now, to put this in more familial terms, there is nothing, there is nothing my sons could ever do to make me love them more or less. They are my sons no matter what, and I have loved them before they were born. And what's more, I don't rank them. So for them to argue amongst themselves who is the greatest, you know, may be something that the world does. So for example, who's greater? Michael Jordan, or his older brother Larry, who was only 5'8". But among the people of God who are all indwelled by the same Spirit, who all enjoy the same position in relationship to God, that's foolish. It's a foolish controversy. Now, as an aside, because of passages just like this one, Christians sometimes assume that that Jesus is teaching that we must have a childlike faith, which they take to mean that we need to have a simple, perhaps anti-intellectual, if the Bible says it, I believe it, and that's good enough for me, sort of faith. And such readings misunderstand not only the nature of children, as if children are by nature dumb. They're not. They're not dumb. They're inexperienced but in turn dismiss the wisdom literature of the Bible as a whole in which it is clear that God wants us to grow into wisdom and maturity. You know, as Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10 before sending them out in his name, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So in other words, Jesus wanted his disciples to be no joke, as shrewd as the devil, even as they are to be as innocent as a sacrificial offering in the Levitical system. Now, that doesn't mean we have to be scholars. 
But it also doesn't mean we should think being a simpleton is something to aspire to. It's not. God means for us to grow into maturity and wisdom and insight and understanding, even as we are to grow in our sanctification, which is exactly what you see with people like Abraham or Joseph or the midwives who subverted Pharaoh's genocide in the book of Exodus. They were crafty like the serpent. In fact, in many ways, they deceived the serpent. They used his own game against him. Or like Daniel in Babylon, and and on and on it goes. To have a childlike faith is not to remain a toddler in our understanding of God and our place in the world. It's to be fully dependent on God as Jesus was, and in turn, to learn to have the same disposition to God and the world as Jesus does. Now, in verse 49, in response to Jesus' statement about least in the kingdom, John said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Now, notice that the unknown man wasn't just casting out demons, and there was such a thing as Jewish exorcists before Jesus arrived on the scene, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But he was casting out demons in Jesus' name. So clearly, the unknown man must have had some success in casting out demons, or else he would not have come to the disciples' attention. But that he was doing this work in Jesus' name ties into what Jesus had just taught them about being received in Jesus' name. So this unknown man was also a believer in Jesus Christ, though he was not part of their inner circle or this close-knit group of the twelve. Now, remember at the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus had given the twelve the authority in his name to proclaim the kingdom, heal the sick, cast out demons. And it doesn't say he had given that authority to anybody else. Uh, Only to them, as far as we can tell. And yet, here is this man casting out demons in Jesus' name. Now, to be sure, there are examples, for example, in the book of Acts, namely in Acts 19, where Jewish exorcists attempted to use the name of Jesus to cast out demons, and it did not go well at all. Here's what Acts 19 says. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, so these are people, this was their job, that they would go probably from synagogue to synagogue around uh, kind of the known world or the known Roman Empire doing this work. They undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So trying to use the name of Jesus as if it is a talisman or a magic spell gets you nowhere. And in this case, the demons obviously knew better, and they took it to the sons of Sceva. Even so, all throughout the book of Acts, the apostles pick up the mantle of authority given to them by Christ, and they proclaim the kingdom in his name, and healed in his name, and cast out demons in his name, and even raised people from the dead in his name. In fact, you can just go do a word search in the book of Acts in his name, or in the name of Christ, and it's popping everywhere. And that's on purpose. The difference between the sons of Sceva 
and, and the apostles is not solely one of authority, though there is something to that, obviously, but that the apostles actually were marked out in Jesus' name. That is, they were in union with the risen Christ through his spirit, and the sons of Sceva were not. And the evidence of this is how they, they attempted to cast out demons. They said, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, as in, we don't know this guy, but we're going to try and use his name. So in other words, they, they did not know Jesus, let alone belong to him, even as they were trying to make use of him. And as the demons make clear, invoking Jesus' name is not a weapon. And it is certainly not a formula or an incantation that guarantees, if used, a certain outcome. Not at all. Rather, we as his people who are in union with Christ through his spirit, we have been given the privilege of asking him to act on our or someone else's uh, behalf, something I do multiple times throughout the service. So just listen to the prayers. I almost always end them in Jesus' name, through the Spirit, amen. That's not just a way of ending a prayer as in like, how do you end a prayer? That's on purpose because we're invoking God the Father through His Son in His name, which He taught us to do. It is a privilege to do this. Luke then is indicating that this unknown man was not like the sons of Sceva, but rather uh, was connected to Jesus in the same way as the twelve were connected to him, that is, in his name, even as the twelve do not know him. And this indicates, at the very least, that the kingdom of God was extending, extending beyond the disciples and the crowds following Jesus, and in turn, it's possible that this man may have very well come to Christ as a result of the disciples' prior ministry. But what the disciples find troubling is that they, they thought they were uniquely singled out for this role. And of course, in one sense, they were. The, the apostles are the, the foundation of Christ's church with Jesus the chief cornerstone. And as we discussed last week, even within the twelve, Peter, James, and John were singled out as pillars of the future church. So for good reason, it's John, the beloved disciple, asking Jesus about this. But in another sense, it seems as though their unique privilege and role as apostles had led them to assume that their role was indicative of a greater status within Christ's kingdom. And this is not the last time this will come up. And that they alone should be able to cast out demons. And thus, when they witnessed another man doing the same work, they tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Recently, my family and I were out to dinner, and in the booth behind us, there were uh, two elder elderly couples having dinner, and the topic of conversation was about when one of the men had started his preaching. And I could only assume he meant his pastoral role of regularly filling the pulpit in, in whatever church. And I'll admit, I quickly grew annoyed while listening to the man. And it seemed clear to me that he was not a well-studied man, not in the Bible or theology or much of anything else, that he, he preached from the heart, that he kind of valued a all-shucks-by-golly sort of country religiosity. And I assumed that he was probably way more of a problem than a help. But I didn't know that. I wasn't certain of that. After listening to him off and on for 10 minutes, I just assumed this about him. 
And I have no idea what kind of fruit, if any, God produced through this man, let alone how good a preacher he might be. He might be awesome. I don't know. I'll admit as someone who spent well over a decade in training for the work I do now that the temptation is always to look down on such men. And I'll admit some of that is just straight-up snobbery on my part. And it's sin. But sometimes not. You know, in truth, men who sound just like this man have been responsible for all kinds of terrible teaching and practices in Jesus' name. And it's appalling what sometimes counts for preaching in some of the churches in our county. And I've been to enough funerals in, in Greenville to see that just because a Christian is well-intentioned and loves the Lord does not mean he should have a pulpit or a microphone. As James 3.1 warns, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There's a certain fear that should accompany, accompany the kind of work I do because I will be held accountable to it. Even so, I did not know if this man was a faithful preacher or not. I made my assumptions mostly based on his accent and grammar and the process I had to go through myself in order to be ordained to the gospel ministry, knowing that this man had not undergone any of that. And my assumption, you know, in many ways is ironic, given that the most liberal and God-denying so-called pastors and scholars in this country come from the well-educated, highly, highly literate grammatically correct classes that had the same scholarly, scholarly training that I did. So a huge temptation for Christians in our age of denominationalism, and there are thousands, I mean over 20,000 denominations in our country. Well, the temptation is to look on other Christians with suspicion and to assume without a thought that they are not one of us. And even when we would not go so far as to say the Presbyterian Church in America is the only true church there is, well, in practice, sometimes we act just like that. Now, in response to John, Jesus says, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. The unknown man's actions were, they were not undermining Jesus' work, let alone the disciples' work. In fact, he was working in tandem with them and was attacking their shared enemy, Satan and his demons. That means the kingdom was moving forward through Christ's work and that unknown man, just like it was through the twelve. So if they were both casting out demons in Jesus' name and the demons were actually responding, then for the disciples to try to stop such a man was to divide the people of God and work against God's purposes. Even so, within Jesus' short statement is the implied call for discernment and judgment, as in, do we have a shared commitment to Jesus and his kingdom? And in turn, can we discern some fruit in that work? And returning to the man I overheard in the restaurant, I think history and experience leads me not to automatically, without question, accept that the man was actually doing God's work. But at the same time, in light of what Christ teaches here, I am not justified in automatically dismissing him either. I need to be discerning, just as the Bereans in Thessalonica uh, listened to Paul and Silas preach and then evaluated their preaching against Scripture. And I dare say, you know, someone listening to a short snippet of me in a private conversation with my family, they might have their doubts about me as a pastor too. 
So it could be that that man in the restaurant is a good and faithful pastor, but perhaps not very deep. Or it could be that the man is just riddled with folk wisdom and cheap religiosity peddled in Jesus' name. Or it could be that he is well-intentioned but mistaken on core points. Or it could be uh, that, that he has real depth of wisdom of a lifetime of walking with Christ, but that he does not sound like what I have come to associate with what counts as a pastor and a preacher. In each of those cases, what is required is patient investigation and prayer. And at the very least, if I find that we do have a shared commitment to Christ, divergences in secondary doctrine should not keep us from recognizing each other as belonging to the same God, even as it may keep us from partnering in certain works. So, for example... Reverend Nathan Skipper and I, we diverge on issues related to baptism, and baptism is no small thing. And yet we don't hesitate to call each other brother, and I've gladly had him fill the pulpit here. I consider him a good and faithful follower of Christ, a good pastor, a husband, a good father, a good husband and a good father. I consider him a good friend, and I have learned from him a great deal, even as we disagree on important points. And at various times throughout my 20-year career, I've partnered with Catholics, Methodists, Baptists, Lutherans, the Orthodox, Pentecostals, Episcopalians, non-denominationalists, and on and on it goes in what I I considered real gospel kingdom-building work, even as I had serious disagreements over key doctrinal commitments. Even so, in each particular case, I would not hesitate to offer the right hand of fellowship to any of the people I worked with And I benefited from them all at the same time. If given the choice between being Presbyterian and any of those other denominations or traditions, clearly I think Presbyterianism is not merely right, but far exceeds them all. Otherwise, what am I doing being an officer in the Presbyterian church? So that means in a country where there are thousands of denominations, we sometimes will live in real tension with other Christians. And while that is regrettable, as Luke in the book of Acts shows, that's really nothing new. The key question is then, do they belong to Christ? And am I willing to investigate that? Am I willing to be patient with them? Are they in his name? Are they with our Lord or against him? You know, sometimes such answers are obvious right from the start, but Sometimes it requires patient investigation over a long period of time. It means that we can't be like on Twitter. We can't just jump to conclusions. But what it certainly means is that we are perpetually called to remember our status and our position in Christ, which by definition, as Paul makes clear in Philippians 2, is bound up in a disposition of humility rooted in him. So Paul's words in Philippians 2 are, I think, An excellent way to end, far better than anything I could say. So I'm just going to read them. This is Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, there is no king, no Lord like your Son, the one who has given us in his name the privilege of seeking you out even in moments like this one, maybe especially in moments like this one. We give you thanks that he is not merely a trailblazer as Hebrews 12 speaks of him, showing us the way. He is the way. He is the one who made the way. It is in him that we have life and our being in every last aspect of who we are. We give you thanks for him, and we give you thanks for the pouring out of the Spirit that unites us to him. And so we pray all of these things as he taught us to do in his name, through the Spirit. Amen.